Father, we thank you once again for your most holy word. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would now move upon the word proclaimed and the word received. I pray that he would take the seed of the word and sow it deep within our hearts so that we might produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are two uh, exhortations today in 1 Peter. We're continuing our series in the epistle of 1 Peter chapter five. And uh, Peter really has two exhortations today, one to shepherds and the others to those who are being shepherded. And I'm going to divide it up between uh, today and tomorrow. Tomorrow we're looking at the remainder of of chapter five uh, to the close of chapter five. And uh, today I wanna look at verses one to four and we'll pick up chapter uh, verse five next week as we conclude the chapter. Um, So a relatively short sermon today, but St. Augustine said that broad minds look for brief statements. And uh, so I'm gonna offer some brief statements to these broad minds uh, in in front of me today and in prayer that uh, you will be blessed even though the chapter is speaking predominantly to shepherds, Um, but it is addressed to you as well and I I trust that you will be benefited by it today. A couple things as as we consider chapter five verses one to four, I want you to notice that when Peter goes to address the shepherds here, he doesn't come down as an autocrat. He doesn't come wielding the heavy language of apostleship, which he had every right to do, even as Paul sometimes will wield the authority of his apostleship to those uh, to whom he is writing. Uh, Rather, Peter comes with the meek identification of a fellow elder, he says. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Sum presbyteros, he says, I come alongside of you. I also am an elder, I also am a shepherd, and so my exhortation comes to you as one who has been charged with the very same charges as you have. I've received the very very same commands as the Lord has given you, that is to feed the Lord's sheep. And so Peter isn't out of touch here. He's not lost in paperwork at the apostolic office. He's in the trenches. He is doing the work of a pastor as as much as any of, of these people are. He is doing what the apostles determined to do at the very beginning. We will not wait on tables, but rather we will devote ourselves. We will give ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. We will devote ourselves to shepherding the sheep through the counsel of the word, and we will give ourselves unceasingly to the ministry of intercession, patterning themselves after the Lord himself, whoever lives to make intercession for the people of God, both in his earthly life and now in his, in his heavenly existence. Remember the Lord saying to Peter, Peter, the devil has come. He's asked for you, Peter. He's asked to sift you like wheat, Peter. But I have prayed for you, Peter. And the apostles know that the work of the shepherd is to give themselves to the word and to give themselves to prayer just like Jesus did. And so Peter's exhortation to these shepherds is based upon his sympathetic experience 
And you'll also know today that his exhortation is based on the cross and it's based on the resurrection. I exhort you as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And I exhort you as one who will partake in the glory that is coming. I will have fellowship. The word here is from the word koinonia. I will have fellowship with the glory that is coming. And so Peter says to the shepherds, brothers, I saw Christ die. I saw Christ bleed, and I saw the glory of his resurrected person, the same glory that is promised to all who obey and follow him. And so I am persuaded, my dear brothers, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it is ultimately worth our while to give ourselves to this ministry before us. He says that glory of the sight of Christ's person, that window into the reality of the resurrected life that I saw, that weight of eternal glory that we saw for 40 days and 40 nights as Jesus was among us, that great house that's made without hands that we saw glimmering in the resurrected Christ, that makes all of the hardships that we go through pale, pale in comparison to the reward ahead of us. And as he writes, his fellow pastors who no doubt are straining and tired and wrestling with all of the numerous discouragements common to, to all believers, he reminds them of the glory that is just ahead, just around the corner. And it's so crucial for us. It's not just for the shepherds here. It's so crucial for all of us to, to grasp what Peter is doing here. And I find myself increasingly thinking that the promise of the resurrection, the promise of this glory, this incredible weight that's ahead of us, this promise is, is something that is like a, like a keystone for the Christian life. It, it, it helps to hold everything together. That the best things in life here look drab and look dim in comparison to that which is coming to us. And when once we forget that, when once we begin to forget that we are essentially, who we are essentially as, as believers, we are essentially partakers of a glory that is to be revealed. When we forget that, the Christian life begins to limp. The Christian life begins to wander and the Christian life begins to fall apart without that. It's the keystone. It holds everything together. My brothers and sisters, we are waiting a glory that's going to be revealed that will make everything else look so dim and so drab in comparison to what we will receive in the Lord. And C.S. Lewis understood this, didn't he? The most heroic, and the most true-hearted Christians are those who like reap a cheap, whose whole purpose, whose whole identity is shaped by a longing to get somewhere, by a longing for Aslan's country. And reap a cheap says this to his comrades as they're sailing on that grand vessel, the, the Dawn Treader. He says to them, my plans are made. It's all done. While I can sail east in the Dawn Treader, I will go, 
When she fails me, I will paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country, I shall sink with my nose to the, to the sunrise. That is the life of the Christian, a longing to get somewhere. One day, writes Lewis elsewhere, God will give us the morning star, and he's going to cause us to put on the splendor of the sun. And all of the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with this rumor that one day we will get into that high country. That is the keystone of our faith. And Peter reminds these shepherds today of why it's worth it all why it's worth it all. Secondly, with that reward in mind, Peter now gives specific instruction to these shepherds. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, Peter qualifies this charge to these shepherds in several ways. First of all, he reminds these pastors that the flock belongs to Jesus. The flock does not belong to these shepherds. The flock belongs to Jesus. They are under shepherds. They are beneath. In verse 4, he reminds them that the chief shepherd's going to return, and the sheep belong to them. And so ministry in the church will always fall into multiple perversions and crookedness and bentness whenever pastors forget that the true shepherd is Jesus. And pastors will always get burdened, and they will get tired, and they will, they will fall out of the way when they forget that the burden of ministry ultimately belongs to the true shepherd. Only the true shepherd can truly feed. Only the true shepherd can truly change the heart. Only a true shepherd, the chief shepherd, can build the church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so it's the under-shepherd's job to let the chief shepherd do his work through him. And when we forget that, that becomes the pattern for great failure uh, in the Christian ministry. And there are a great many shipwrecks in the church of pastors who've forgotten who the chief shepherd is, number one. And secondly, he says, he reminds them that there is a responsibility even though the sheep belong ultimately to the chief shepherd, who is the chief architect and worker, even so, there is a responsibility for these pastors. Exercise oversight, we read. The shepherd has a charge to take care of the sheep. One of the most solemn, if not terrifying, verses for me comes in Hebrews 13, 17. And there we read this, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. In the last couple of decades in North America, at least, there's been a movement to democratize the church. There's been a movement to kind of level the playing field, to bring down the pulpit uh, with the pew, to make everything equal, and to erase all distinctions between pastor and parishioner. And it suggests that apart from a manifest visibility in the pulpit, there's really no difference at all between pastor and sheep, shepherd and sheep. 
And as a consequence, many Christians today have espoused the view that they don't really need a pastor. They're fine just kind of floating around by themselves, you know, to each his own. I'm an island to myself. I have no need for a spiritual overseer of this sort. And so they've lost sight of the need for spiritual shepherding. But my brothers and sisters, there is a real distinction and difference. Pastors have been charged by God with this heavy task of watching for the souls of his people. The sheep need to be watched. The sheep need to be overseen. They can't watch themselves. They can't protect themselves. They can't guard themselves from the wolves of sin and the, world, the wolves of worldliness and the, the wolves of the devil. They need a shepherd to do this. And so the Lord has given to his church shepherds to watch the people of God and pastors must give an account to the Lord one day how well they have watched how well they have protected, how well they have fed and nourished the sheep so that they can become healthy, godly, Christ-exalting people. Paul says, I've got a divine jealousy in me. I'm divinely jealous for you so that I can do one thing, present you as pure virgins to the Lord. That's my longing and that's my passion. And Paul says, one day the Lord will say to me, Paul, what did you do? with these people. Did you tell them the truth, Paul? Did you warn them against sin, Paul? Did you tell them about the judgment to come, Paul? Did you fan in them a flame to love and to admire and to glory in the beauty of my son, Paul? Paul, what did you do with these sheep? And what a fearful task this is. What a fearful task for the shepherd that the pastor is responsible for the souls of his people. We read in Ezekiel, if you do not warn them, prophet Ezekiel, if you do not warn these people, their blood is on you. And so James says to us, not many of you should long to be teachers. Not many of you should long to be ministers of the word because you will be judged with a stricter judgment. I mean, it's a good reason to want to have a small church, right? It's a good reason not to want to grow bigger because the bigger we grow, the more the shepherd's responsibility becomes. And so I beseech you today, in all honesty, that even as I pray for you, you would pray for me that I would always choose faithfulness over popularity. That I would always be willing to say the hard words that cut as well as the soft words that heal, that I would always be in Paul's mind, Paul's words, sober-minded, enduring suffering, doing the work of an evangelist, and fulfilling my ministry because of the gravity and the weightiness of the task ahead of me. And now Peter outlines three more qualities that pertain to the pastoral vocation. We look here in, in chapter five. Number one, Pastors must choose to be pastors. It must be a willing embrace of the vocation. And that implies a definite, heart-searching, heart-shaping, heart-rending call from the Lord. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say to young men who were, who were coming to him, asking if uh, he could help them along their path to become preachers of the gospel, he would say to these young men, if you can find anything in your heart, anywhere in your heart that you can do anything other than being a pastor, don't be a pastor. Because when the call of the Lord comes, when the burden of the call to ministry comes, those who are so-called feel themselves to be in chains to the gospel, and their cry is, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Pastors must choose to be pastors, and that comes with the definite call of the Lord. Secondly, they can't do it merely in hopes of making a dollar. Peter says here in in verse number three that they must not do this ministry of shepherding for shameful gain, but they must do it eagerly. Now what Peter isn't saying here in any way is that pastors shouldn't be paid. We know that because elsewhere in scripture it's very clear that the laborer is worthy of his hire. And he isn't arguing that pastors should be kept in relative poverty. We all know the mantra of the church board, right? Lord, we know we'll keep them poor, you keep them humble, right? That's, uh, that's been going around for quite a while. That's not Peter's point here. What he's saying is, is that if a man chooses pastoral ministry for the sake of getting rich, then he is deceived. If a man chooses to be a shepherd for the sake of, of uh, enriching himself, he is being deceived because the true motivation of the pastor is the glory of God and the souls of men, and the real payment, as we read here in chapter five, is an enduring and an unfading crown of glory. So second, pastors must not do this merely in hopes of making a dollar. And finally, their teaching, verse three, must be forceful by example, rather than downward by dictatorial pressure. Their teaching must be forceful by example rather than by downward dictatorial pressure. What Peter means here is that true power is not the power to control people. True power is not the power to control people. Rather, true power is the power to inspire. True power comes with that supernatural stirring in the heart for Jesus. True power comes that as the man of God does the work of God, then the waft of the supernatural flows through him and people are stirred and and become those who long for the kingdom of God. And this supernatural stirring This inspiration that a man of God can create in the people of God cannot come through words only, Peter says, but only through the power of a godly example. I find it interesting that in 2 Timothy 3, when Paul directs Timothy uh, to the purity of his apostolic teaching, uh, the teaching of Paul is vastly overshadowed by the reality of his example. Listen to what he says to Timothy as he points him to his teaching. You, however, have followed my teaching. And listen to what follows. My conduct, my aim, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings. Eight descriptors of his example before him and one reference to his teaching. And so 
it will ever be for all of us that the efficacy of our words is tied to our example in this life. The truth, writes the great Puritan John Owen, will never flow in power through us until it first dwells in power in us. And so my brothers and sisters today, God help all of us to rightly value the office of the ministry of the shepherd so that none of us may be ashamed at the Lord's coming. And may I rightly fulfill my ministry here so that you might become a glorious church without spot and without wrinkle. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.